Hello, this is Frank Falvey with Frank Presents. It's my uh, honor and privilege to have Judy Hall, who is the Republican nominee for the 4th Congressional District, which not only covers Franklin, but surrounding towns of Franklin and runs from North Attleboro to Fall River. Julie, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Let me first of all congratulate you on winning the Republican primary and uh, being uh, a candidate on the uh, Republican ticket in uh, November when people go to vote. Uh, Julie, where did you grow up? I grew up in Walpole, but this, you know, of course, um, it was quite some time ago. Walpole's kind of changed a lot now, but I grew up in Walpole. I was in a family. I had six other brothers and sisters, so we were very middle class. I had a father and mother that with my father worked two jobs. You know, when you have a family like that, you're in the middle class. And my mother also worked. And I tell people the story that my mother used to come home. She was a nurse just in time. She worked the night shift. She came home just in time to get us all the, all the seven little halls off to school, you know, to make us breakfast and off to school. So I feel that's one of the things that's a benefit to me is because I grew up in this area and I sort of represent the uh, majority of the people down here. So then I moved to, I went in the military and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I'll just kind of, I went in the military. Uh, I went to Massachusetts Community College first. So that's important. I'm a huge fan of community college. Um, I remember more from Massachusetts than any of my higher costing universities. I remember so much from Massasoit. I went there for two years, and after that, I went to the military. I came out of the military in 2009. And can, I, can we talk about the military? We can. Uh, Julie, what, first of all, my understanding is you enlisted in what Correct. branch of the service? I enlisted in the Air Force. So I started off in the, uh, 1978 as, a, as an airman, a, a, what we call a slick sleeve, nothing. Uh, the actual first rung of the of the enlisted rank, and I was a behavioral health specialist. So what I did is I dealt with a lot of the what we started to see was the PTSD. We didn't know what it was then, so I did a lot of that. I also my specialty was psychometric testing, doing personality testing and doing testing organic testing to help the neurologists. So it was a really interesting job. In in the uh, military during the period that you served, do you feel they uh, advanced women and, and, and did the system improve for women that were serving in the military? Yeah, it was, um, thank you for asking that question. It was a struggle when I first went in and you always had to prove yourself and you're always challenged and marginalized. And I came in, I had an associate's degree. And at that time, an associate's degree um, was, nobody else had, even had an associate's degree. So people looked at me sort of an anomaly, but still I had to prove myself everywhere I went. The thing that was difficult in the military is when women were not allowed to go into combat and not allowed to go into particular jobs. And the reason why that is, is that affects your pay. It affects your pay because when you go into a combat area or you're allowed to go into those areas, you get medals, you get ribbons. Those medals and those ribbons count towards points and that counts towards promotion. And when you limit a particular gender, 
from having access to those opportunities, you are then limiting their opportunity for promotion and you're limiting their opportunity for pay. And I always thought that that was not right. And, and yet that has changed not too long ago to quite some time before that changed. You achieved the rank of a colonel. And as I understand it, you oversaw uh, medical operations? Or yes. how, how can you describe that? Sure. Well, I think in the civilian sector, you'd call it the uh, chief operating officer and uh, the ex healthcare executive. So at different times, I, I did different things, but that's, I ran the entire hospital. So all the support, the logistics, the personnel, the money, everything that, that made that hospital run, I oversaw all of that and brought that together. And I did that so that the doctors and nurses, the healthcare providers, my job was to make sure that they had everything they needed to, to get the healthcare done. The other thing is I had some special duty assignments, which were awesome. I used to be a member of the, the team for the air medical evacuation. So that was a great assignment. So was I actually, that evac Was that evacuation for only uh, military purposes or was that also for possible civilian? Sure, it, well, primarily uh, it was supposed to be for military personnel and we had quite a system um, that, that we had going on. It was a very, very effective system, but occasionally we would get calls from Washington, D.C. <laughs> asking for them. And I'm laughing because, you know, you know, when people tell talk about, you know, who gets to get priority and sometimes exceptions made, we used to get these calls from Washington, D.C. about special situations uh, for people to be picked up. The problem is if you were a civilian and you wanted to use the aircraft, even if they allowed that to happen, the cost of paying for the fuel and paying for the team to come out was extremely expensive, cost prohibitive. So um, yes, it was primarily for active duty people, for their dependents. Um, we had a burn unit, a beautiful burn unit. We had a whole team that would go out um, at, at a moment's notice. We had also a team for neonatal babies. We called them, you know, babies that were having difficulties. We could go out to any base any base in the United States and overseas to go out and help that family get that baby on an airplane and bring that baby back to one of our larger medical facilities. It, it, was, it was amazing and one of the best assignments I had. Do you believe that we should continue the all-volunteer uh, military or, or do you think at some point the draft would be appropriate? I think the draft is appropriate if we're needing a large group of people right now the best thing to do is let people volunteer because i think you get a higher quality of people you get people that want to come in that are committed to come in so the other thing is i don't think knock on wood and and you know god willing we ever have a conflict with that many people bodies if you would people are going to be needed to fight a war the technology that we have now overcomes a lot of that, takes the place of human beings, which is a wonderful thing. So I think the all-volunteer forces is wonderful. I don't see and hope that we'll ever have to get into a situation of a forced draft again. Coming back to your, your life and growing, growing up, apparently, did you go through an ROTC program while in the military? I did. I did. It was interesting because when I first went, went I was enlisted, I was a staff sergeant at the time. 
And one of the reasons I went in the military in the first place was to get my education, to continue my education from Massasoit. I wanted to continue and I also wanted to serve my country. So I applied for a program called, it wasn't called, yeah, it was called Bootstrap, where they would allow you to go out and get your degree. Now, if I failed, I had to come back in. But um, during that period of time, I was considered to be an ROTC student. While I was there, though, I applied to a medical, the Medical Service Corps. And the Medical Service Corps, just like the lawyers and some other specialties like chaplain, you have to meet a special board. They're very careful. It's a very careful selection for these particular jobs. So I met that board, and then that sort of put me into a different status. Um, the Medical Service Corps has quotas for different, different types of students. They also took academy grads, a percentage of academy grads, a percentage of ROTC. They took a great percentage of prior service. So I kind of hit two boxes for them there. So yes, I did, um, went to the University of Maryland. I was a Terrapin for about a year and a half. It was a two year program, but because of my prior service, I was able to be moved out earlier and on to my first base, which was England Air Force Base in Louisiana. Coming back to your uh, growing up, uh, you say you went to uh, Walpole Public Schools? I did, Walpole, yep, Walpole High School. And after, after the, well, you served in the military till you retired. How many right. years? Well, it was over, it was, I say 30 years, but it was really all told. I started off uh, delayed enlisted January 13th, 1978, and I got out in June of 2009. So if you count up all those years and everything in between, it's a little bit over 30 years. But, you know, there's different ways that you measure. Some of it's for pay purposes, some of it's for longevity. Um, and so the military sort of counts things different way. I, you know, the pay, I, I was obviously interested in, but you, I spent more time than 30 years, actually. So I just kind of cut it off and say 30 years. It's a long time, my entire life. My entire adult life was spent in the military. Well, as we can see, uh, the radio ones can, can't, but as I can see the uh, hall sign for Congress, uh, have you always been a Republican? No. As a matter of fact, before I went in the military, I was a Democrat. And... It was probably my experiences of what I saw in the military. I got to go to countries where they don't have the same rights that we have. They're treated horribly. Women in particular don't have the rights. And in some countries, they were actually considered property. And I thought to myself, wow, this is, this is it made me appreciate what we had here in terms of rights and liberty and freedom and how important that was. And, and I really, that's kind of what kept me in the military is the fact that I felt that I was playing a role to preserve those things. And so though that's one of the things I've always been a fiscal conservative, always um, growing up in a large family where you're always struggling for money. I don't know. If, I don't know if I could not have been a fiscal conservative. My dad, you know, always was talking about money and trying to stretch a buck and, and so forth. So I think I was always a, I believe I always was a fiscal conservative. So, you know, when it came to that, the other thing is I bragged to people in the military 
about Massachusetts being the first shot heard around the world and how we were the ones that, you know, took up arms and as farmers, and I don't know if you've ever gone to see on Lexington Green, the reenactment, but it's, it's I, breathtaking. I have. I you, have. So you know what I'm talking about. I do. Truly, what principles of the Republican Party drew you to be a Republican? Sure. The fiscal conservativeness first off, um, and it's sort of it's funny because people say, well, how do you pick one or the other? Well, it's kind of it's almost like a checklist that and, and I think that other people outside people more than yourself sort of put you in that that box. Um, and so the fiscal conservativeness, you know, a supporter of the Second Amendment, uh, you know, lower taxes, lower government. You know, I think I am more of a people person. And again, I've, I've been in experiences where I have seen how people of all genders, races, colors, sexual orientations, I've, I've led these people, they've, they've worked with me. I have seen what the power that people, when they have a goal, they can work together. They don't need government to tell them how to do things right. So if you come in with a good heart, good conscience, good character, as I had in the military, you can overcome so many things and you don't need government to tell you what to do. Uh, Julie, in your uh, profile, you say that you believe in capitalism. How do you define capitalism as it relates to businesses? Sure, I think it's the free market. It's a use of competition. Now, I was a hospital administrator in a what I would consider 100% taxpayer paid healthcare program. We had control of the largest part of that budget, which was salaries, because you got paid by rank, not because you were a neurosurgeon or because you were a family practice doctor. That is the largest part of a, any kind of a medical budget. And we had that controlled, and yet our costs still went up. So I, as part of the military, had to instill some of the free market values. So now what are those? Competition competition between businesses that's what helps if you can put in those you know what we call an rfp request for proposal you make sure that there are quality standards and measurements strict measurements and and that you have a relook at this after a period of time all of that is is put into a proposal and when you go out and you get companies to compete for those kinds of things you can lower the cost the other thing is a free market that's where ingenuity starts. A lot of our inventions, our technologies that we have today came because people were asked to do just that. They were asked to compete. They were asked to you know, use their own minds to go out there, to go out and get a loan. And, and here we have some of the one, most wonderful technologies, probably better than most other countries. Julie, then let me ask this. As I picture capitalism as it relates to business, businesses are on their own. They're either there to fail or they're there to succeed greatly. Do you, do you believe in capitalism in that type of business then that the government should not be supporting them or, or allowing large sums of money uh, to prop them up? Or do you see a role of government in monetarily supporting businesses? I do. I do see that the government, especially in the case of what we're seeing right now, 
we see a lot of businesses that are failing, good businesses, mom and pop shops. You know, the, my first belief is that the mom and pop shop, the business, the small business, and I'm a huge fan of the small business. I like the large businesses too. I think we need large businesses because they sustain a baseline for the United States. But I'm more focused in on those small business people because I think that that's why people came to America. And I think that's one of the most beautiful. So yes, I think government in this case, as you can see, definitely needs to step in and give a hand, but then it needs to get out of the way because- Do you, do you believe that the total economic package that was passed for, in essence, uh, businesses in this coronavirus, do you feel that those packages that have been passed so far are appropriate as a conservative? I, I don't feel they're appropriate, not because I'm a conservative, but I think that you can't have a sweeping rule that says all businesses will get X amount of dollars. I would have done a more targeted approach. There's a couple of acts out there that target certain types of business. The restaurant business is not the same as the lawn care business. It's not the same as a gym. They are all different. And I think we really need to look at those businesses and come up with packages that are really going to help that business. We have a tendency to just, in my mind, throw money and say, hey, everybody, everybody have this. And we have to stop doing that. We have to look at them and we have to talk to those businesses and say, what's really going to help you get ahead? Mentioning restaurants, though, restaurants probably on their own have a high, high failure rate. In yeah. other words, why why should we, why do you see there should be support for businesses that you know are going to fail? Sure. Well, there, there are some, and, and I have been working in my own community. I was on the city council in Attleboro, and one of the things that I was able to do is to reach out and get a couple of businesses to come in. But I also kept very much in touch with some of the other businesses that were going on. One of the things is we have some of the restaurants that have sustained, sustained themselves for many years, family businesses that have taken the opportunity to grow. There's one in particular that's one of the oldest restaurants and businesses here in Attleboro. And it's devastating to them because their backup business was catering. So, so they're kind of getting, getting a double whammy. So I think there are businesses that can demonstrate that they have the business plan to succeed. And, and I, I like the way you're thinking because I'm very much a person that feels that you have to demonstrate that your business has a plan to succeed in order for the United States government or the state to, to help to put money to that. And I think we do that through the community block grants program actually has criteria that business businesses have to meet certain criteria before they are allowed to have those grants. Julie, debt of the United States, is there in your mind a point that you would not support some uh, economic packages? How much debt as a congressperson would you allow the United States to accumulate? You know, I can't really say the, the number because, you know, as, as you see Congress, there's always, they're always finding reasons why they have to continue the debt. However, I know that my approach is always going to be one of accountability. I, I use the same approach that I used in the government. 
Um, they call it, I think, uh, cost. I used to call it the cost benefit analysis. They call it a business cost analysis. Either way, that is the approach that we have to take when anybody proposes a new pro project or a new program and they want funding for it. They have to do the research. They have to prove that it's cost. There is a benefit to it. They have to say what their outcome should be. And then we have to put some criteria on it that we're going to go back and look at this in a couple of years or four years or in other words, there's got to be a very strategic plan. And you can see how my, my mind works. I, I think very strategically and because I've had to deal with taxpayer money. Really right now, we're having wildfires in the West and we're having hurricanes come up the East Coast. Yeah. Um, we have tended to spend, forgetting what FEMA does, uh, you know, forgetting the place of FEMA, but we have tended to spend billions of dollars in rebuilding our, our on a federal level, declaring disaster areas and, and giving all sorts of, at some point, shouldn't we rethink what we're doing in in an area that is hit time and time again, and we're we're time and time again given money for the same thing. Sure, and I I mean one place in particular I can think, and I lived in Illinois. God bless those people out there. But there's a floodplain out there that gets hit all the time, and the property's underwater. And I kept thinking, why do people keep moving out there? Um, you know, I I don't know if you can restrict people from, from living in a place that they want to live. But no, but I'm talking about government funding right. for them to stay there or for them to buy flood insurance and, and the government oh. is backing the flood insurance. Gotcha. Gotcha what you're saying. So no, I think in that case, you know, there's some individual responsibility. You know, you have rights and everybody has rights and you have a choice and that's the beauty of America. But oftentimes that choice should not be pushed on to the taxpayers if you have a certain cho choice that you want to make. I think the other thing, you know, when it comes down to healthcare, the same thing, people don't want to be forced to purchase health insurance if they don't have to purchase health insurance. But so I think you're right. I, you know, I haven't really looked at it in that much of a depth. I do know we, we should be putting our priority. There is some infrastructure that I'm very concerned about that needs to, that if we do have these types of situations, we're gonna lose streets, we're gonna lose bridges, and our economy still runs off trucking. I think trucking is one of the, one of the major things that people don't look at. And our-, our well, They look at it in a very few short number of years. Trucking is gonna be driverless. It's gonna be an automatic truck. But Julie, going back to the, um, wildfires in the west and the hurricanes coming up the coast yeah. do you any do you see any relationship to that in climate change uh you know i i know we've we've over many thousands of years we've seen the climate change many times you know it was an ice age i happen to be stationed in new mexico and there's actually remnants of the ice age down there so i think a lot of the thing the way i look at this is you know, the, the earth turns, this is a spinning globe and that spinning globe moves a little bit every time, it moves away from the sun towards the sun. And I think that's more, in my opinion, of what affects the climate. However, I do believe that some of the things that we are doing here in our earth, mother earth, could be changed. You know, we're causing pollution 
that can be changed. And we need to work on those kinds of things. We probably are doing things that are causing damage. I know we're doing some things that are causing damage to the earth, you know, fracking. And that's very unusual, I know, for a Republican, but I'm not a fan of fracking. I don't like the idea. I, I think it's not, you know, I know people say, oh, it's safe and gas is safe. I get that gas is safe. I'm not sure if it's quite safe to be changing the tectonic plates <laughs> or whatever is underground. I'm not sure if that's quite the right thing to do. You can cause earthquakes that way. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an expert, so I'm going to say that right there. I'm just going from my personal gut feeling, but I think that we need to move towards different energy alternatives, almost in a way go back, you know, using water, um, Julie, hydropower and wind. Julie, um, what is your take on the current uh, meteor? Uh, is, is the current meteor uh, just always an editorial? Uh, or is there anything in the current media that is uh, factual? I think that it's difficult. That's the, the problem. Um, you know, it's difficult to tell, to know the truth. And I think that I do a lot of research. I mean, I can't, there is not enough that I can read. And I have to be able to use my gut. But in particular, my experience says, and I say not experience, but experience says that I've had in my life helps me validate what I believe the truth to be because I've been out there. And I think that people need to somehow get out there in the world and have those experiences because then they'd be able to tell. Because I think the media, I believe the media is biased, definitely biased. And I think it's, it's definitely biased towards a liberal audience. I've experienced that personally, or I wouldn't say that because I don't make judgment calls unless I experience them personally. So I've had some difficulty myself with the media. Uh, I think that, um, you know, they'll tag on to someone in particular. And then in my particular case with my opponent, when the primary was finished, I was barely, barely mentioned. And I definitely feel it's because I was the Republican candidate. But is there also some Republican media, and I'm particularly thinking of Fox News, that is the other way? Well, interesting that you said that. Fox News also marginalized me. I was shocked. I was I'm shocked. I'm not. Okay. I'm like thinking, hey, wait a minute. I thought you, I don't want to say you were on our side. I don't want to pick sides. But, you know, they also picked up on the, you know, releases that were out there. And I think... Number one, I could give them a pass if I say, oh, you didn't do your homework. You were just picking up on what you saw out there. But my goodness, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very accomplished female colonel who started at the bottom and made it to the top. I didn't do that because somebody just gave me a pass. Wow. I, I, I'm proven. I'm proven in my success. And I think, you know, to me, it's not marginalizing me. That's the most important thing. What's being said to my constituents in, in District 4 is, and you don't get a vote either. Julie, think, let, let me ask you some real quick questions. Sure. Would you do away with the penny? Because it costs uh, so much and it's mining up mineral. Would you do away with the penny? Oh, no. I like the penny. I, you know what? I, I save them. I'm, I guess I'm like Ben Franklin. I have a big jar and I still save my pennies. 
Julie, the downtown station here in Franklin is not handicapped accessible because the law for years and years has said you don't need to make it handicapped accessible unless you spend 25% of the capital. But if you were in Congress, would you change the law so that all public transportation stations would be handicapped accessible? Yes, I think I, I think you need to look at that carefully, though, because not everything you know, has to be people. I'm talking uh, about public transportation. Yeah, yeah. Public. I'm not talking Correct. about. No. Gotcha. Yeah. Yes. Because one of the rights we have as Americans, and I think all American, all Americans need to have a right. You need to be mobile. You need to be able to get around. What if you need to get to work? So what if you're using a public transportation to get to work? If, if you don't have the available availability to do that, then we're going against one of the rights, which is the opportunity for prosperity. So I would use the Constitution to say yes. Uh, would you, when in Congress, would you vote to continue, continue the tradition of having a chaplain uh, open Congress and having a chaplain in Congress? I would. I, I, think, I think it's important that we, again, I'm gonna go back to the Constitution and I think all people, all religions, you know, are welcome. All religions are definitely part of our community. We're all Americans. But I like the idea traditionally. I, and I would say, rotate that. Allow different religious leaders to come in or to do it together. There's nothing wrong with being, nothing wrong with being inclusiveness, with being inclusive. Julie, Massachusetts uh, Republicans, do they endorse rank voting? Ballot question number two. No, no, no. They, um, and, and one of the things that I've been reading up on this is um, the electoral vote was put in place for a reason. And again, I, I read a lot. And I just thought it was very, very interesting because what they were trying to do is keep sort of a mob mentality. And, and I'm not saying this. I think it was the forefathers that basically said they wanted to protect against people who didn't educate themselves about the process and just kind of got whooped up in one direction. And they wanted to make sure that that didn't happen and that the voting process stayed fair and equitable in terms of allowing the voting process to be pure. And again, I'm not saying, I don't know by any chance saying our, our listeners and readers are not educated, but that's why this particular, um, you know, electoral college was put into place because then what you would have is everybody from California would be ruling the country, if you would, or from other places where there's a conglomeration of people, just numbers. And that's why they put the electoral college. So it does protect all of us across the United States to ensure that we have fairness in our voice in Congress. Yeah, but you know, I'm not particularly talking about the Electoral College. I'm talking about in Massachusetts, if the person does not win by 50%, when you go vote, you're gonna vote a number of times in ranking where someone, uh, it, it, you're voting once for the first person, then you're voting again, and then you're voting again, and unless someone wins by 50%, there's a different formula as yeah. to who is going to win. Do you think Massachusetts Republicans support that uh, ballot two question to the no. Massachusetts? No, 
I don't okay. think they do. I think that I think the process. Listen, we're having a, we almost have a difficult time in executing now. We've got so many difficulties going in our electoral electoral process right now. But I don't think that they support that. Julie, I'm interviewing Julie Hall, a Republican candidate for the U.S. Uh, congressional seat. Julie, in the one of your biggest jobs uh, as a congressperson will be constituent services, both working with towns and cities, but working with individuals. How would you set up your, your office and how would you handle constituents? Constituent services. services. Yeah, yeah. And, and just, you know, again, I've been on my city council before, so I've worked with many constituents. I'm not on the city council and I still have people call me. And as, as a natural helper, I guess, or leader, I always want to help people. So, so that's one of the things. I, I think we need to have, I, I will try very hard to have offices um, available to the people because people need to have access. They shouldn't have to drive all over the place to do that. So I think having accessibility. The other thing is, is making sure that the people that I have that are helping me I'm very careful about vetting the people that work on my campaign and that are there to help people because I need to make sure that those people are truly people that want to bring forth what I believe in, which is I've always gone out of my way. Now, my son is in Texas, so I, you know, 24 hours a day, people, people say this to me all the time. They said, you're out everywhere. You're always up. You're always doing things. I have that availability to do that. It's what I've done my entire career, and that's not going to change. So I will be available for people. Let me ask uh, uh, this, Julie. There are certain social, what you call social programs that uh, the government funds for individual services. And and there are some that uh, you don't agree with or oppose. But if, if someone from your district called up and asked for help to get those services, would you still provide that help? Yes, I mean, so as my job as a hospital administrator, I have had people approach me about services that necessarily weren't covered by an insurance company, individual services. I have had to tell people and sit down and say, I can't do this for you, but here's what I will do for you. So even if I couldn't provide a particular service, I would try to listen to that person very and, and to say, listen, I'll try to get some other people if I felt it was a valid thing or if, and again, this is not my decision to make as, a, as an individual. I know that that's the control, but I, I am doing what is what I believe that the district four would want me to do. So that also makes a difference because you know, you're looking out for an entire district of people, but I've never, I don't want to say never. I don't want to use the, the negative. I want to say the positive. I am known as a person that goes out of their way, bends over backwards, works many, many hours to try to help even the individual person. Because, you know, sometimes the individual gets lost up in the big group thing. And sometimes the individual just needs to be fought for. And I'm kind of a fighter of the underdog. Julie, you mentioned a son in Texas. But can you talk about the family and apparently you adopted a, yes. uh, a, a son. 
Yes. And, and so when my, did that adoption happen? The adoption actually happened a couple of years ago because I found out about a thing called adult adoption. But I had never told Michael, his name is Michael, and he has the same name as me. I had never told Michael. I had sole guardianship of Michael since he was nine years old. I never stopped being his parent and never told him that when he turned 18 years old that I was no longer his parent. I continued to pay for his weddings, to make sure he learned how to drive. I treated him like my son the entire time. But when I found out about the adult adoption, I called him up and I said, would, would you like to be my son? And his answer back to me was, What's, what do you mean? I thought I always was your, was your son, which, you know, I just touched my heart. And he could not wait for this to happen, to, to be able to, for us to be a family, because we have always been a family since he was nine years old. Michael's father, who tried very, very hard to take care of him as a single dad, um, just could not do that. So I was able to step in. I'm going to say kind of reluctantly because I didn't, when I first did this, I, you know, I'm, I'm taking on my first command where I have maybe thousands of other people that I'm going to be in charge of because in the military, you have to be a leader and you have to do your job. So now comes this nine-year-old boy that I've been away in the military and I did not know very well. And there was a lot of medical issues, uh, lots of issues that, that, you know, kind of heart wrenching, you know, for the whole story. When I did this, I did it because I knew it was the right thing to do. And I, I know that, you know, people wanted me to say, oh, because I loved him. And he was my nephew, but I didn't really know him that well. All I knew it was the right thing to do. And, and I was going to make it work because that's what we need. That's what I do. And we were a team and we're still a team. And uh, I tried to get him to go in the Air Force, but he said he did not want to uh, be competing against the legend of Julie, of Julie Hall. So he went in the Army. Julie, what committee in Congress would you like to be on? I, you know what? I keep this right here because um, I actually have them ranked. My first one, and I think I sort of expressed this, I want to be on the Committee for Small Business. Because again, I think that the small business is the backbone the backbone of America. It's what, it's what America is all about. So I want to see the small businesses stay viable in this country. Truly, my perspective about businesses to begin with, right, is that it is the consumer that is the important factor mm-hmm. and not necessarily the business. Mm-hmm. If, if, if there's no consumers for, for a business or if consumers aren't able for whatever reason, economically to support a, a business, then the emphasis to me should be on the consumer and how the consumer then helps the small business. Am, am I off base or how do you see that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I always believe there's sort of a hybrid approach, but I understand that's part of the free market. In other words, what you're describing right there, that's that's part of that, that they have to be able to have a service that other people want. Sometimes there are businesses that I believe that do things for the community may not be a want, but they're a necessity within the community. Um, but I just think that if somebody's got a really good business plan, 
and can prove to us. I'm not saying just give people money and just bail them out. But if somebody comes in and says, listen, I had a hardship. This in particular, COVID is a perfect situation of where I think some people unduly worked against, if you would, and tried very hard to stay afloat. And so it's an unusual situation, but I still feel that they need to produce or show a business plan of why they're going to be viable and why they believe they are going to continue to be viable in order for us, the consumers and the taxpayers to continue to, to support them. Do you think the airlines deserved all the money that we're paying them out of the bailout package for coronavirus 19? Do you believe the airlines are, are deserving of the money and, and, why shouldn't we just have let them fail as someone else pick up the opportunity? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a good point because I think if you're kind of really strict, you know, on the market, at the free market kind of picking up and doing that. But again, I think this was an unusual situation. They were told that they couldn't have people fly. I mean, for a long period of time. The government, when the government gets involved too much, it works against the free market. So I think that there is some, there is something that we have to do. And unfortunately, now we almost have to go back to the government to, to fix it, if you would. But I think once it gets fixed and once they get on their feet, the government needs to step away and they need to fly on, they need to fly on their own, so to say. You and your blurb uh, don't, don't think much of socialism. What first of all, how do you in your mind define socialism and what is it about socialism that you don't agree with? Well, I think that to me and being in what I consider again a fully funded, a fully taxpayer funded environment for over 26 years of my life, it did not work, it did not make medicine better for anybody. It did not keep the cost down. There was too many controls, government controls. I don't like, in my mind, let me answer your question first. I think socialism is a move towards government being con in control of many, many parts of our lives. I think that's counterintuitive to what an American, what freedom and liberty is all about. So from a fundamental standpoint, I want less government control, not more government control. And what we've seen is every time that government has stepped in and taken over almost every time, it's failed. It's not been good. Even in healthcare, you have to make a profit. That's why the term was changed from nonprofit hospitals, if they changed the term to not-for-profit because every, every organization be it a, a not-for-profit, whatever you want to call it, has to make a profit to stay viable. You have to make a profit to be able to turn that money into more technology, more research. Those are the things that go when you go to a government system. The first things that go is all those extra things that you're able to buy, if you would, when you make a profit. So, I mean, government control, I'm going to give you an example. I talked to a lawn care uh, business owner here in the local area who did great all the way through COVID because they were never affected by COVID. And I asked him, 
economically. Correct. Correct. Okay. They had to make a lot of changes to the way they sort of processed their people in and out. But I asked him, I said, if you could fix anything, what would, would it be? And he said, well, you know what? He says, one of the things you have to be as a business owner, you have to be determined. Determination, because every step of the way, the government is coming in with a new regulation, a new edict, and you have to change a business. And what they don't realize is every time you have to change this, that's more money. And for a small business owner, that's crippling. So he said, you know, you, you, and some people, he says, won't make it just because of that, because they'll say, I'm tired of this. I'm not going to deal with this. And they'll just get out of the business. So what he said, because I said to him, would, would it be extra money? And he said, no. So I don't think that. I don't let, me, let, let me ask this. Uh, in Congress, uh, Congress has passed a law, and I, as I understand it, that we need to pay full price for medicine that the government buys. Um, that goes against, I think, your principle of yeah. free market. Uh, would you actively work to change that? Yeah, I mean, I think it brings, again, competition. So when you talk free price, I would hope that that free price is the end price after it's been competitively bid. I find that in a socialized medical system, you are paying full price. And that's the reason why, because you don't have that competition. The government sets the rate and that's what you pay. When I was able to go out into civilian sector and I was able to do that, even in my socialized medical system, I was able to go out and compete with the civilian sector for healthcare services for all of my military people. So I gave them a group. When I was able to do that, I saved an enormous amount of money, the United States government. They gave that money back to me. I opened up operating rooms in my clinic, my military taxpayer clinic, and I started doing healthcare um, outpatient visits at a much lower price than what we were able to do downtown. Why? Because I was able to cap my salaries. So there was some, I believe in a hybrid approach to a lot of these things, and I think that's the thing. While we're moving to free market. But free market, I've used it, I've done it, it works. Even in a socialized medical system, you can still bring in those market factors to do that. So, you know, the thing is, is that and in this case, the government, it stepped out of my way. It gave me the permission to do this, to go out and, and work in contract with the civilians. And I was able to do it, and I saved a lot of money. Julie, you're probably not aware of this, but uh, the University of Massachusetts hospital system refuses to take United Healthcare Advantage plan. So even though I'm under Medicare, an advantage plan, right, uh, I can't go to the University of Mass Hospital unless it's an, an emergency room. That, that doesn't seem uh, Medicare advantage benefits. Would you, in Congress, say that every hospital has to be able to at least pay the Medicare advantage uh, benefits, even if they don't accept the rest of the plan? 
I would incentivize it in a different way. And the reason why I'm saying this is I've worked a lot with my community hospitals who run into a difficulty because of the fact that they are accepting Medicare and Medicaid patients at a greater volume than the pay hospitals, which is what you're talking about. That, so that they that pay hospitals that can refuse people, which, you know, that's unfor- the unfortunate part. So how do we combat that? We have got to ensure that Medicare and Medicaid is paid, is funded, so it makes them competitive with these other pay systems. So it would be to their benefit. The way a hospital makes money, even if it's a little bit of a lower cost, is by volume. So if we were able to shore up how much we, the government pays for Medicare and Medicaid, we would be in a much more competitive environment, a much more competitive stance. And I believe you would find that some of these hospitals that are saying no would all of a sudden say, yes, yes, yes. Julie, Hall running for the 4th Congressional District, uh, what, what is the question that I haven't asked you that you would like to address? Well, I think the biggest question is why, why would people want to vote for me? And, and I think the, the reason I, I, I know, I, I grew up here. I'm not only in the heartland, if, if you would, geographically of the district of District 4. I don't have to pretend that I'm middle class. <laughs> I'm middle class. I, this, is, this, is where, this is where I am. The difficulty that we're having now is we have a person that comes from a very affluent family, a very connected family politically. And I, that they just don't represent the majority of people in District 4. If you put us two together, he's in the military, I'm in the military. I outrank him. I've been in a lot longer. I have more experiences. I have two master's degrees. And I think it's time, really, I think that a, a, a woman in particular brings a different perspective to Congress. We need more. Not to say that the men aren't doing a great job, but really we need more because one of the biggest things that we should have is diversity. Diversity helps us out. And, you know, for me to be a woman in the Republican Party, that's, that's, another, that's another change. We haven't had many women. We have a whole group of Republicans that are running this year in particular that don't fit the old mold, the old mold if you would. No pun intended. No, we do not fit that mold. You know, we have a number of women. We have a one gentleman that's outwardly gay. So we are not the old Republican Party anymore. And I think people need to take a second look at us. We are much more open-minded and inclusive than, than ever before. In the, state, in the state of Massachusetts, which is supposed to be the tolerant state, and we get, we get treated like, you know, you're a Republican and you're a horrible person. I'm not a horrible person. I've done very, very well. I'm very successful, and you don't have to take my word for it. You can take the United States government's word for it because they promoted me to colonel. So I do have a track record. So I would like to tell people that. Julie uh, Hall, how can people reach you or become part of your campaign? Um, Could you give us some information on that? Sure. 
I do have a beautiful website and I'm not, I tell people this because I don't want to pat myself on the back. Somebody actually made it for me. It's one of the most beautiful campaign pages I've seen and other people have said this. So it's Hall for Congress. Of course, they tell me, the younger people tell me now, you don't have to use www anymore. But that's of course, www.hallforcongress.com. And if you get onto that website, you can, you can donate there. You can join the team. You can read about my issues. There's pictures of me on there. And we have an email you can, you can get on from there. So please, that's the best place. The other way you can do that is I do have an email. And it's juliehall.us at gmail.com. And I'll tell you, some people are very shocked when they said they like to hear from somebody on my team and I call. I do the best I can to call every person myself. And it, it really freaks them out. It's like, I'd like to, is this Julie? And I'm, yes, this is Julie. So please, if you have any questions, please go look at hallforcongress.hallforcongress. That's H-A-L-L-F-O-R. C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot com. And uh, that will get you right into me. Julie, if you're coming at all at times to the uh, town of uh, Franklin in particular, you might want to notify Franklin Matters. Franklin Matters is a, uh, a website uh, that tells about happenings in, uh, in Franklin. Uh, so you may want to keep that in mind. Do you have do you have any uh, um, voting is going to begin what the uh, week well, before the, uh, you can actually go and vote at the Franklin Fieldhouse probably starting a week before the actual uh, voting day um, the the early voting again will be at the Franklin Fieldhouse you can fill out the ballot there. Or on uh, November, what is Tuesday? What is the date? Sure. It's Tuesday, November 3rd. Tuesday, November 3rd, you can go to the Franklin uh, Fieldhouse uh, and vote in person. The Secretary of State uh, should be mailing out at some point uh, ballots if you would prefer to uh, mail by ballot. Hopefully, uh, three thousand ballots won't be kept in the Franklin uh, in the Franklin <laughs> we'll be looking for safe. Those. <laughs> uh, the uh, another important thing to the for the listener is the Secretary of State will be sending out uh, the ballot questions and the pro and cons of ballot questions. Mm -hmm. And as as Julie mentioned on ballot question two, which is ranked voting, I think very little coverage on the negative side is being uh, put forward or that you can find. I would really recommend, and Julie, do you agree with me about really preparing for that question? Uh, listen, I'm gonna tell people because I've seen this before in other ballot questions, read the questions very carefully because sometimes those questions are written in the negative. But I do agree with you that there is probably not as much attention and perhaps because it's probably not something that the Republicans favor. <laughs> I would be willing, willing to bet that has a lot to it. But please, please read those questions very carefully and understand when you say yes, what you're saying yes for, and when you say no, what you're saying no for. Because I've seen 
I'm not saying they're tricky. It's just the way that, you know, it's legalese or something, um, the way that it's written. So that would be my advice is care carefully read those. Read them for yourself. Don't listen to what other people tell you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Julie Hall, a candidate for the 4th Congressional uh, District. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, Frank Falvey with Frank's Presents. And uh, uh, I hope you uh, not only listen to this program on 102.9 WFPR, but you also turn into our local access uh, cable uh which is both on uh, Comcast and Verizon in Franklin. So ho hope to uh, see you uh, out at the polls around town. I'm the guy with the cowboy hat, and uh, feel free to come up and say hello. Uh, so this is uh, Frank Falvey and Julie Hall uh, thanking you for listening to this program, and have a great day. Thank you, District 4. Thank you.